Lord, I'm thankful for this room that you have filled up with so many people that you're, you're working in. I thank you for the ways you've been meeting them all week, and I ask that you would um, sharpen our gaze to see what you're doing, to see your hand in our lives, make us sensitive to your spirit. Um, I pray that you would help us gather our thoughts and our hearts that have been scattered throughout the week, and I pray that you would bring them to um, beautiful focus this morning as we contemplate you, um, and we look forward to uh, a holy week and Good Friday and Easter on the horizon. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, when I was a young lad, the jump from the um, LDS church uh, in the heart of Utah, which was my background, to a sort of like non-denominational Baptist fire and brimstone-ish style church came with like all sorts of culture shock, as you can imagine. Um, but one which sticks out to me in my memory was the sudden appearance everywhere I looked of this image. Um, it, it might be like the most, one of the most identifiable symbols on planet Earth, if not the most identifiable symbol. Um, but it does not adorn um, the Mormon church in the same way that it adorned every church I would attend following my departure. Um, which is not to say that the LDS church does not recognize the crucifixion. Um, it, does, um, it does recognize it. It just doesn't showcase it as a symbol on the walls or any of the art very much. And so I remember my mom, um, who also left the church, I remember her getting her first cross necklace. It was like this pretty golden lacy thing. Um, and then I got like a WWJD bracelet um, with a little cross bead under there. And then we got shirts. And then um, suddenly to like wear uh, a cross was to be like simultaneously cool and edgy and sort of like rebellious in Utah, which is just hilarious. I don't know. It's weird, weird culture. One day um, when I was in the fifth grade, I sat next to my good friend, Natalie, who was like beyond sweet, beyond sweet, and just about as quintessentially kind Mormon as they come. Um, and I don't, I don't know why exactly I did this, but I remember like parroting to her, like the rhetoric I was starting to learn in the Baptist church that I was secretly attending on the weekends with my mom, just like, you know, basic um, conversion argument, apologetic talking points, things like that. And so I said, why, why wouldn't you wear a cross? I, fifth, fifth grade Jace said. Um, even though I had like little conviction of my own as to why I even had one on my wrist at the time. Um, and Natalie said to me, it's so sad and gruesome. It's like hanging an electric chair around your neck. And we were in the fifth grade. <laughs> having this conversation at lunch as <laughs> we're like eating our chicken nuggets. I couldn't believe it. So um, despite the trajectory my life would take, one marked with all sorts of churches and biblical study programs, um, all adorned with crosses at every turn, I never forgot Natalie's humble little statement. Um, and frankly, it was the first dose of humility for me, which would develop into a much larger story, which held a really soft spot. Um, for Mormons, rather than seeing them as some weird, like, mortal enemy. But that's, like, a sermon for another time. We can talk if you're interested in that. 
Whether or not um, Natalie's um, electric chair comment was its own version of like a Mormon talking point against mine um, that we were told to say, uh, I don't know. I, I've heard that comment since from other people at other times, but what I do know is that when she said that to me, she was very genuine and she meant what she said. The cross was like scary and sad to her, and that was genuine. Um, Rowan Williams, in his book, The Sign and the Sacrifice, which we will be referring to for the rest of this series ahead, it's a short little thing, easy read, you're welcome, you should get it. Um, he asks the same thing of the Christian church. Why do we have an instrument of torture at the center of our imagination? Um, and I would add, like, it's a perfected tool of torture, designed with precision for the way it would draw out the suffering of its victims. It's like brutal in every way. And why do we have that everywhere? And not just the cross. I mean, we must turn and face the visceral, gritty, blood and guts rawness of this ancient faith and all its symbology. In case you haven't been outside of church world in a while, you guys, if you're Christian, sometimes you just are in church world all the time, Christian world. If you haven't been outside in a while, like to an outsider, I just want to remind you, it can be quite jarring. Something that I'm reminded of every semester when I teach my Bible students um, that have never taken a Bible class before. Every time I teach it, I'm reminded, oh, this is wild, what I'm, what's coming out of my mouth. So to shock your system fresh and make you... Um, relate, hopefully relate to like my students, we adhere to a story <laughs> which finds significant spiritual symbolism in, and meaning, deep meaning in stories about circumcision, bloody covenant ceremonies, sacrifices, and intense cleansing rituals that are associated with like mortality, sin, life and death. And then of course, communion, which we just took, where we're eating, consuming the flesh and blood of a Jewish man that lived 2,000 years ago. Symbolically, um, the Wednesday before last, many of us acknowledged the beginning of Lent, which is a season which begins with the smearing of ashes on the forehead for millions of people around the world. Um, in like this spirit of repentance, leading up to, of course, the ultimate bloody symbol, which is the cross of Jesus. <laughs> it's like, what is happening? Like, why all the blood and the gore, my students ask? Like, let's just, like, take a break for a second. Um, of course, Williams will go on to testify, Rowan Williams will go on to testify of the beauty of such a symbol. And here we go. Uh, I, of course, have no issue in elevating the symbol of the cross among our people. I, too, have been drawn into its profound beauty and glory. But it is worth some reflection. Why do we not hang like little symbols of like a stone rolled away with like light coming out or something, or like a fire in a cloud. I have no idea. Like, could we come up with something else, you know? But we don't. And the church hasn't in the past. Um, so today, we're beginning the series, which will take us through the season of Lent, um, which we're calling God With Us. Um, throughout Lent, we're preparing for Holy Week, which according to the traditional like liturgical church calendar, is the week in the early part of spring, beginning with Palm Sunday, where we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem, being hailed as king, 
Um, and then in the days which follow, it tracks the final days of Jesus's life up to Good Friday, where we remember his death on the cross, and then concludes with Easter Sunday. Um, but because Holy Week is truly like a sobering crescendo of death leading up to the time of Jesus' death on the cross, Lent has become a time of really leaning in to the reality of a world of hardship and then and repenting. And so our aim is to explore the meaning of that of the cross, um, the, the death of Jesus. And this, like, there, that's no small theological feat. Um, but kind of with Williams as our guide and through the pages of scripture, we intend to contemplate the cross as sign, sacrifice, and victory for us. And all of this will sort of set us up to explore the resurrection afresh, um, which I'm very excited for. But today I want to talk to you about the cross as a sign, um, this symbol that points us to something and signals something. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to the Gospel of John, um, the fourth biography of the life of Jesus in the New Testament. And go ahead and turn to John chapter 2 if you want to follow along. I will have the verses up on the screen if you didn't bring your Bible. Um, so for the sake of time, we just can't read the story in its entirety. But to summarize, um, <clears throat> Jesus is invited to a wedding. This is one of the more famous stories in the Gospels. Um, even if you have no church background, you might have heard of this story. Jesus attends a wedding, and it comes about that the host's of the feast of the wedding, they run out of wine. And so Jesus famously takes the six stone jars um, and there performs a miracle with them. He turns the water into wine and the party becomes a total rager. Just kidding. But it was probably a great party for real. Um, It was a great party because as the master of the party says, and John too, he says, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drunk freely and aren't thinking so clearly, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. So this is like a top drawer miracle. Everyone is blown away that the best wine comes at the end. And it's immediately after the master of the feast says this, that John, the careful author of the story, tells you, the reader, the following statement. This, the first of his signs... Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples, they believed him. So if you've ever done any studying in the book of John, then you might know that John has structured his entire biography of Jesus with a strategy to explore the idea of signs and glory. It's kind of the book of signs and the book of glory is how Bible scholars talk about the book of John. John is the author who, when talking about Jesus' miracles, specifically employs the vocabulary word sign with real literary strategy. The other gospel authors use the word sign um, in Greek, semion, um, but they also use words miracles and other things, manifestations of power or whatever. But only John structures the first half of his book with an agenda to tell you about the first sign and then the second sign, all climactically leading up to the last sign. Um, So, very simple question. What does a sign do? (laughs) A sign signals to us that we, have, that, we, that we ought to have our eye out for something else. It points us to something, the reality of the sign. <laughs> That's how this works. So whenever we drive over the Glen Jackson Bridge with our kids, we say, look, there's the sign for Washington. Say, goodbye, Oregon. And our kids go, goodbye, Oregon. Hello, Washington. Hello, Washington. So of course, what we're waving to is that massive chunk of land 
on the other side of the water called Washington, not the sign of Washington that says Washington State. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just very basic. So John wants us to think about things in the same way, though. And sometimes we miss this. What is this pointing to? The first sign Jesus performs in the Gospel of John is a miracle about saving the best for last. Okay? Now hold that in your brain and look down at the next story that comes in the next little section. John places the story of Jesus overturning tables next. And he places this at the very beginning of his gospel. Whereas in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where does Jesus overturn the tables? It's at the very end of the story. John, though, puts it right up front. Now, why would he do that? What is he trying to tell you? Well, after Jesus unleashes a holy anger at the money changers in the temple courts, John tells us that the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, who the heck do you think you are? Like, show us some sign of that authority, buddy, because you are way out of line. Jesus replies, <laughs> in classic Jesus form, destroy this temple. And then in three days, I'll raise it up. And they're like, okay. Then, Jesus, then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up? in three days. Then, just like the wedding story, John, the author, whoop, inserts himself into provide, and provides some commentary for you. Okay, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Hmm, okay, uh, hold, hold it. Hang with me, guys. Hang with me. What do signs do? They point us to something. So there's this land mass called Washington beyond the Glen Jackson that we're meant to arrive at if we read all the signs and pay attention and keep traveling the road through the laws of the road. And here we have two stories about signs and then people believing. John's trying to plant some seeds for you. They ask for a sign about his authority and he starts talking about his body, which is already through the already pregnant symbol of a temple. It's all getting kind of crazy. But if you keep holding it in your head and you keep reading the Gospel of John, you go all the way to chapter 20 in John's Gospel. And after having remained hidden behind the narrative for a while, John comes out once more and appears to you, the reader, after the resurrection of Jesus, and he gives you this statement. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not even written in this book. But these are written so that you Who's he talking to? You, the reader. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So you read this passage at the end of the story, and all of a sudden the light bulb appears over your head. Oh, my goodness. John has strategically told me a story about a series of signs, seven of them, in fact, which have reached a climax in the ultimate sign. Um, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if we've been paying attention to each sign, we see that they're all pointing in some way to this great act of the King Jesus to unleash a sort of new love and new life into the world, this, this world-changing event. So the gospel builds to this final miracle which all the signs are pointing to, and Jesus' death on the cross and, and his resurrection from the grave is this moment. So then, hang with me, you go back to the beginning 
to the wedding story and um, think about it again. When Jesus turns water into wine, John calls it the first sign. But what was that first sign all about? The first sign is about the best thing being saved for last. And now you realize, oh my goodness, the cross is, and the resurrection, it's the last, it's the greatest moment. But it's at the end, it's the most, it's the fullest and perfect sign. And I was told to get ready for that all the way in John chapter two. I was told to prepare myself for that. And so all of this signs, what, what are we doing? So what are all these signs doing? What truth are we being given? Why do we have a gruesome symbol or a sign of torture hanging up all around us? What are we supposed to internalize and take hold of with this great sign? Um, when we take communion or we contemplate covenant, what does it all mean? And so the nature of this series aims to really try to reflect on this at length. And fair warning, like the mystery and the glory and the beauty of the cross is eternal in its depth. And scholars and theologians have just been reflecting for 2,000 years, always going deeper. So we're not going to do any like exhaustive work over the next month or so, but we will do some good work. Um, okay. So to reflect more thoroughly on the cross as a sign, I'd like to welcome you all into my heart for the next few minutes. Um, and if you don't know this about me, I have always been a very sensitive person. <laughs> um, I have a very sensitive nose. When I was a baby, I used to really gag at my own poopy diapers and throw up, so my mom would cover my head with a towel when she changed them. Um, true story, and it still is hard. Smells are very difficult for me. Um, one time, Marshall, and I was over at Marshall's house, and he's like, hey, do you smell anything on that couch? And I, like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, you've got a mold problem. You've got to get rid of that couch. And I was right. I was totally right. Um, I was a very uh, anxious and fearful child and adult, just like, like a little chihuahua. Um, as a child of divorce, I also developed a detrimentally high like sensitivity to the moods of others, like quickly cultivating that sixth sense about how to please and pacify, not upset anyone. Um, and I mentioned this last week a little bit, if you were here, like later this became a real strength for me because it gave me access into the hearts of so many friends of mine. I count myself very fortunate to be someone who has been given access into really vulnerable spaces. Um, my natural sensitivity or sensitive disposition made me a safe place for my equally as sensitive wife, who in turn became a safe space for me. And it's all like weeping and whispers and eors at our house when hard times come. Just like, oh man. <clears throat> which is good. I like, you know, it's great. But uh, all strengths come with like that shadow side. Um, and because I'm highly sensitive, like so deeply affected by like stimulus, news, emotion, etc., my plate fills up super fast and my feelometer just like boop, maxes out in like two seconds. Um, and that's a very unpleasant feeling that I feel often. And so my tendency, which I discovered in my late 20s. Um, my tendency is or was to harbor a lot of unconscious anger or bitterness towards anyone or anything that would inflict that discomfort on me, overwhelm me. I'm overwhelmed and you're the one overwhelming me because I can't, I don't want to feel anymore. <laughs> it's someone's fault. And so whoop, I would just shut down. Um, but sometimes you cannot shut down because the pain gets way too close. It's too close and there's nowhere to hide. 
Um, it's not a movie you can look away from. It's not a bad dream. Sometimes the pain is so much your reality that you have no choice but to say, this horror is my life. There's no escape. This bad news has taken up residence in my home and it will not leave. Instead, it's feasting on all of our joy and my peace. And it's either making me ill with such like violent grief or it's sending me into absolute numbness. Um, a year ago, this happened to our family. Um, happiness, like even just the simple pleasure of going home from work or church and just like unwinding by kicking your feet up on the patio or something, eating a sandwich or like laughing, it's just the return of a little memory, like all of it, gone. Joy was gone. It was sucked from our lives by the hellish vacuum of an unexpected diagnosis. And that story is not mine to tell, so I don't want to say much more about it here. But what is my story to tell is the way that I personally began to navigate the valley of the shadow of death. Um, because there we were, our whole family suddenly shipwrecked on some godforsaken stormy island, stumbling our way through a barren wasteland of death and despair, forced to carry it all in our bodies as we tried to just navigate life. And for a couple months, we were ghosts to our children. We tried to be present, to like play with them, um, but mostly Liv and Turner witnessed just a very sad mom and dad. I showed up to meetings, I went to work, Mick made lunch for the kids and she did laundry and we did the bedtime routine, but our hearts were there on that desert island, dehydrated, dying, just stranded in sorrow. Um, and some of you have experienced grief like this. And if you have, then you know the, there's another level of sadness which accompanies it. You feel like a burden around people. At least I did. You darken doorways with your gloomy mood and your depressing tidings. And it's like, like the wicked vacuum that came and sucked the joy out of your home. You now bring that same vacuum into every room you enter. No matter how hard you try to put on the smile, you just like make everyone feel sad and you become awkward. And it's just awful. It's an impossible situation. And there we were. The valley of the shadow of death is what you think it is. You're in death's shadow and it's dark and cold and nothing grows down there. So here's my question. <laughs> Who in their right mind would agree to go down there if given the choice? Um, and so here's why I mentioned my sensitivity. I certainly would not, like no way. I, <laughs> I'm too easily overwhelmed. Mick and I can barely survive news articles but to actually go and be with someone in the valley, like in real pain, that's personal emotional suicide. It's, it, it's the actual sacrifice of my sanity. But I started witnessing it firsthand. Um, when Michaela and I were a few weeks into um, the news of this diagnosis and our family member, there came a Friday morning when the grief had reached its darkest. And I didn't think it could get darker, but every day it just got darker. And it was like, we were being utterly destroyed by it. And again, I'm a highly sensitive 
person. And so I lack the language to describe to you what it felt like. It was crushing us to the actual floor. And I went to a Friday morning prayer and I began to share what was happening. And most in the room at this prayer meeting, they already knew through like text. Um, But now I was articulating it through like violent weeping and snot and like knots in my stomach in a shortness of breath, and I began to spit out and articulate the agony felt within our family and the anger I had at God or Satan. I didn't even know my theology was blowing up and there were no clean answers, but the grief was real and it was gushing out of me. And then I watched as one by one, everyone in the room, rather than recoiling from me, They saw me in the valley of the shadow of death and they began to join me, like willingly. And here's what I mean. They did not just stay there with me, though that is valuable. Somehow, they opened themselves up to feel it in prayer. They began to pray with me and and we all prayed and I watched the grief take them in whatever way that works. And it clicked for me what I was watching. Later it clicked. We talk about giving money and giving acts of service and putting action to our love, and that's all wonderful. Jesus was like all about that. And it's important. It's part of the church. But you know what is especially costly to me, Jace, a very sensitive person, when I see someone willing to give up their happy Friday morning to enter into my agony willingly because they love me. Like they could have had a bagel on the waterfront. That's what I would have done. Instead, they were willing to be filled up with grief, the very thing I'll fight to the death to avoid. But here they were, carrying it with me, weeping, feeling, giving up their peaceful morning. And it wasn't just them. Like many of you joined the cause, giving up time throughout your day, to open your hearts in order to bring my family's pain before Jesus, knowing good and well that it might cost you some tranquility. You might feel something in that act of intercession. (laughs) The chill of death's shadow might engulf you for 10 minutes. And I do not take that lightly. If that was even you in the smallest way, even the smallest way, eternal thank you. A second lived in death's shadow feels like an eternity, and in droves, people came willing to spend hours, days, willing to talk and pray indefinitely with my family. So it occurred to me that I was seeing in all of these people a sign, a small sign of a greater sign, because here were people who had been marked and changed by the capital truest love of Jesus seen in the sign of the cross. And so were willing to give me a sign of their love. Shortly after all of this, um, we had our Good Friday service. Um, We call it the Tenebrae, the Tenebrae service, which is um, a liturgy performed on Good Friday where we as followers of Jesus journey with him to the cross through scripture, song, and poetry in one evening. The service is done um, in the gradual fall of night. If you've never been, I really encourage you to come this year. It's held 
Would you do it in the portal? Um, and it, by the end of the service, the room finds itself in silent darkness, um, intentionally. It's all a symbol. I'll never forget Tenebrae 2022, because something new and profound about the cross was settling deep into my soul. And like all theological mysteries which find their homes within us, this one is just as difficult to articulate, but here we go. Here's my best shot. Because I knew um, in a new way how cold and ugly the valley of the shadow of death was, I say knew it because it was the first time in my adult life that I was tasting grief that potently. Because I knew how horrifyingly bleak that valley was, I suddenly saw another facet, another like shining angle, another stained glass panel of the cross. My soul suddenly felt in the midst of the weeping, good news, like it had never felt before. Because why? Because here was a God who would see me all the way through the valley, all the way through. Here was a God who also went through the valley, who felt it all, and therefore, <laughs> who is with me right now, feeling everything with me. He's with us. We're not alone. The cross shows you the extent to which this God is willing to go. <laughs> That's like, this is like Christianity 101, but my mind's being like blown for the first time. And again, I want to remind you um, of this thing being exposed in me during the time, this time, my tendency to avoid grief and pain. This is like being highlighted in my life at a time when I can't avoid this. <laughs> I just, be, I couldn't avoid this one. I had to be in inside, excuse me, of this suffering because it was thrust upon our family. But it became clear to me that given the choice before all of this, I would never willingly subject myself to all this sadness, if I were honest. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. The Bible tells us of a God who does not shy away from the brokenness in this world. He never looks away like I do. He's the shepherd in the valley who will accompany your every step. And again, theologically, this was category shattering. Because <laughs> what does it mean that the Lord is my shepherd? Like, honestly, uncritically, I've always just assumed that it meant like, oh, he'll take care of me. And like some, some form of like happy ending in the end. Like if I ever found myself in the valley, I could just trust that he was God and he would bring about like good things. Um, and there's a tension here because I do believe like most of what I just said to you just, just now. And yet, there I was in the valley with no clear happy ending. And my soul was desperately hungry, desperately thirsty, and it needed to know what does it mean that you're my shepherd in this valley if you don't answer my prayers, if you don't show up. And thus it began to dawn on me. The good news um, is that God is first and foremost with us because he has experienced the fullness of grief and death. And when you are at your worst, when your pain is at its greatest, when your mood is at its darkest, so that you repulse everyone, every sane human being in your life, there is a God who will sit in that space with you, with no agenda to move you faster than you, have to, than you can go, 
No agenda to get back to his own happiness and leave you alone. And according to the pages of scripture, he feels what you're feeling too, somehow. He's sad too. He's brokenhearted too. That cross you carry is, was first carried by him. And he will not forsake you. <sighs> Again, since I lack the real language to articulate how this is all sinking in for me, I can't really um, transfer to you the sensation of goodness, which started to overcome me, but it really did. It really was good news in a profound way that God was not only with me in some like spiritual sense, but that he was with me in my emotionally sensitive way. <laughs> it's like I needed to know that. That he wept, that he felt. And so one aspect of understanding the cross is understanding it as a sign. And by a sign, we mean um, how Rowan Williams articulates it in this way. Rowan Williams says, the cross is a sign of the transcendent freedom of the love of God. Our lives, in contrast, are regularly dominated by a kind of emotional economics. I give you that, you give me this, I give you friendship, you give me friendship. God is free to be who he decides to be, and we actually can't do anything about it. And God's mind is focused upon us for mercy and for life. The cross is a sign that the love we're talking about here is God's full giving of himself to us. He's willing to be in the depths of the pain with us. And here's the point. The Bible is shouting a gospel over us, a message of good news, that the king of the universe is advancing his kingdom through the slain and risen Messiah, Jesus. But the good news begins before anyone rises from the dead. The king is willing to die. This is where the good news starts. Even in the pain and grief which we face every day, the gospel preached in the New Testament tells us of a God who said, yes, even there I will go. There is no shadow too ugly, too dark, too cold, not even the shadow of death itself in that valley you find yourself in. Yes, even there I will go and be with them, to, to love them. And suddenly I was feeling it, feeling the good news afresh. Because it's really, really comforting to know when you feel insane that you're not alone. <laughs> really good news. <laughs> that God's with me in every way. And I found myself praying such like crazy, like uh, just a crazy prayer. A prayer that um, I had yet to pray with any real conviction in my life. I said, oh God, if you do nothing else for me but the cross, thank you. And I've heard good Christians do that prayer before, and I'm always like, yeah, but like, also like real life, you know, it's hard. Um, so I don't know if I can really say that. But there I was. I, I felt like I was at rock bottom, and I felt like I was, he was with me. And it was the first time I prayed it with conviction. <clears throat> so what's crazy then is that the good news, oh, get, get a load of this. What's crazy is the good news does not stop there. God with us is like, it's just the beginning of the good news. The good news, though, is about a kingdom so powerful, so good, 
so full of life and light that it is breaking down and ripping apart the very fabric of grief and death, just like ripping them to shreds with something much stronger. And so we read the stories of Jesus like blown away that by his hand, things are being like rocked and shaken and transformed and brought to life. And to be sure, church, Good Friday gave way to Easter Sunday and Jesus rose from the dead. And the hope of the gospel, it goes beyond withness in death. It becomes perfect communion, withness in resurrected life. And what's more, <laughs> Jesus himself says, you know what? He says, you know what, you guys? Why don't you go ahead and ask for all the good resurrection stuff now, a little early? Let's get the best for last wine party started here in the valley of the shadow of death before it's scheduled start time in the age to come. Let's get it started right now. Let's get the party started. What do you say? <laughs> and that's why we boldly pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He told us to pray that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Getting ahead of myself. That's the series to come. Now you'll all come back and hear it again. I'm excited to go through this journey through Lent up to Good Friday and celebrate like a madman on Easter Sunday. In light of this, the cross, while it is, as my friend Natalie pointed out, a gruesome symbol, the point is that all that death and horror has been redeemed into God's grand purposes and the cross is, for the church, among many things, a sign that God is with us. And here we see the communal, great, free love of Emmanuel, God with us. Only here in Jesus on the cross do we find a God willing to go into every shadow, every dark corner, every place of grief, and not just be there with us, but experience it himself so we know we are not alone, and then guide us out. It's a love beyond my capabilities, certainly. And I think Jesus was even more sensitive than me, honestly. And yet, though the cross is beyond all of us, it is our great sign of love. And so we thank God for the spirit of Christ who guides us to this great sign and then empowers us to exhibit small, though imperfect, signs of love to those all around us the same spirit.